Hello, Brave Marriage Podcast listeners. I know it has been quite a long time. Over the past year, I've been seeing clients doing a lot of writing over on Substack under the publication name Self of the Therapist, where I've been working to publish a memoir in real time about some of the very things I'm talking about today with Sheila Ray Gregoire. You all know Sheila. You have heard her and her husband on the show before. And in the space of a year, she and her team at Bear Marriage have written and published a book called She Deserves Better. She Deserves Better is a book written for mothers and daughters adjacent to the typical work done at Bear Marriage, as well as to the content you typically find here at Brave Marriage. But I wanted to have Sheila back on the show to share her new book with us, co-authored by Rebecca Gregoire Lindenbach, her daughter, and their statistician, Joanna Sawatsky, because it builds upon a lot of the research they published in The Great Sex Rescue and answers the question that many millennial Christians and parents are asking in the church, which is, where do we go from here? If you're not familiar with her work, Sheila Ray Gregoire is the face behind the largest single blogger marriage blog, which was rebranded a few years ago to Bear Marriage. With her witty, no-nonsense approach, Sheila and her team are passionate about changing the evangelical conversation about sex and marriage to line up with kingdom principles. Sheila is based in Ontario, Canada, where she lives with her husband and has two adult daughters and two grandchildren. Now, one thing I do want to mention as we get into this conversation. While editing this episode, I noticed that Sheila and I both made statements that stemmed from her or others' research, some of which is referenced in The Great Sex Rescue or on her blog. So if you find yourself curious about some of the things we're saying, some of the statements we're making, and you want to learn more, when you're done listening to this episode, head on over to Amazon to buy The Great Sex Rescue and pre-order She Deserves Better. You can also go back and find my previous conversation with Sheila about her books, The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex and The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. I will link that episode in the show notes. And now for another conversation with Sheila Ray Gregoire. Well, Sheila, it's so good to see you. Thanks for being here again with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I want to start by talking about The Great Sex Rescue. Um, How do you think this book builds upon that one? And why did you feel like She Deserves Better was the next book for you to write? Yeah, so when we did The Great Sex Rescue, so we surveyed 20,000 women and we looked at how there are certain evangelical teachings or teachings that are prevalent in the evangelical world that lower women's marital and sexual satisfaction. And if you go to Amazon, like seriously, if you're listening, just go to Amazon right now, look up Great Sex Rescue and read the reviews. And you'll find that the most common words said are like validating. And oh, I feel so free. Like, thank you. And this is what women and men kept telling us. And like, I feel so free. I feel seen. Like finally someone's saying it. But then they, so many people had the same issue, which is, okay, I know what's toxic and I don't want to pass the toxic stuff on to my kids. I want to do this better for the next generation, but I have no idea how to do that because I also don't want them to be totally promiscuous or go off the deep end. So now I don't know what to say because I was raised in toxic stuff. So that's what She Deserves Better is about. We surveyed another 7,000 women to find out how their experiences as teens in the church affected them long-term. And, and what messages we can say instead that are helpful. Wow, that's really helpful. So yeah, talk to me a little bit more about your research design, what, what different factors mm-hmm. you're measuring. Well, people, people often know the term purity culture. 
right? Which is, um, it, it refers to a movement in the evangelical church, which became quite mainstream in the late 90s, kind of until maybe 2012, 2013. And what it was really based on is this idea that the main way that you show your faith is you save sex till marriage. So your, your faith is enti- almost entirely defined by whether or not you're a virgin. And most of the teachings and most of the talk in youth group was around that and how girls needed to reach a certain level of purity. We needed to protect boys' purity. And it was all sex all the time. And this was a new thing because I'm Gen X. I'm older than that. And I did not grow up with this. Like my experience in church as teens was all about how we can pray and how we can make a difference in the world and and how we can change our schools. And it was very outward focused, mission focused, evangelism focused, concern for, for um, sex trafficking for the poor. And then all of a sudden it morphed into the way you show your faith in Christ is just you don't have sex. And it's a very different thing. And now, even though purity culture is over, a lot of those ideas are still with us just in different ways. And so what we did in this survey is we measured ideas. um, We measured the level of sex ed. We measured the rules that kids had. And then we looked at outcome variables. Now, in purity culture, the only outcome variable that mattered was was she a virgin when she got married, right? Like that's what everybody was aiming for. We are going to raise kids who don't have sex until they're married. I have two adult daughters who are both married. And I can tell you that, well, sure, I wanted them to save sex for marriage. That was not my main concern. Like once you have adult girls, you realize there's things that are way more important. Like how about I don't want them to marry an abuser, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's more important to me. Um, if they are married, I want them to have really high marital and sexual satisfaction. Um, I want them to have high self-esteem because self-esteem is so linked to everything. Like when you have better self-esteem, you're going to, you're going to have better relationships in general. You're going to do better at jobs. Like everything is going to be better. And so we only measured virginity. For years. And and in our survey, what we were trying to do was was look at other outcomes and see how some of these teachings, yeah, they in some ways purity culture worked. Girls were less likely to have sex before they married, but they were also more likely to marry abusers. Mm. And is that really what we want? Right. Those are bad <laughs> outcomes. Yeah. <laughs> sacrificing <laughs> self-esteem and sacrificing healthy relationships on the altar of a girl's virginity. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah. Man. Yeah. So you, so you were looking at experiences at church, evangelical teachings, parenting practices, sex ed, like you were saying, and then measuring that with self-esteem, future marital satisfaction, and then girls relationship choices. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious, what were, what were some of the most surprising outcomes that you found? I guess it wasn't surprising in in the sense that there was an effect. It was just surprising at how strong the effect was. So mm-hmm. when we looked at great sex rescue, one of our big outcome variables was vaginismus or sexual pain, um, because evangelical women suffer from sexual pain at twice the rate of the general population, um, or sometimes even more than that. And this has been known in gynecological literature like forever, but nobody's known why. And so in Great Sex Rescue, we found a big piece of the puzzle was the obligation sex message. So telling women, you don't have agency over your body. If he wants sex, you have to give it to him. That is highly related to vaginismus. But what we found in this one is there is another piece that is like just as related, if not more so. And it's the modesty messages that we give to teenagers. When we tell girls that you it's your responsibility to make sure that a boy doesn't stumble, and mm-hmm. and to keep him from lust. And the boys can't help but lust if they see a girl who looks like she's trying to incite it. That's really bad. Like your chance of having vaginismus increases by almost 50%. 
which is a very large increase. And and not just that, with the modesty messages, your chance of marrying an abuser goes up by 68%. Like that's wow. a large increase. That's really yeah. significant. That is seriously significant. And <laughs> We told them, we told, we told both boys and girls that boys temporary lessened temptation to lust was more important than girls' long-term marital sexual satisfaction and physical safety. When you put it that directly, because I grew up in, um, I'm a millennial, I have three younger sisters, so it was all girls (laughs) in our household. Thankfully escaped some of the messages, but I also did read Brio and I also Mm -hmm. did read a lot of the dating materials. I read Josh Harris. I read some of the things I'm sure your girls read. Um, and it's like without, without parents realizing necessarily that was occurring, we were being exposed to these messages. Yeah. Just, I appreciate the research that you guys have done to say, like, if you got these messages in any way, shape or form, or the degree to which you got them significantly impacted all of these things when you became an adult. It feels like you're both helping a generation of of women through your work, but then like you're saying, this book is geared toward parenting and helping my generation now parent the next generation better. Yeah, or even reparent yourself. I mean, we have like, we have over a thousand people in our launch team right now. And so many of the women are just, they're women in their late 20s. They're single and they're saying, I just, I just need little me to hear what I should have heard. Yeah. When I was 15. (laughs) Yeah. Gosh, there's such therapeutic value in this. I had the chance to read through it before we met and um, I was sharing some of it with my husband and I was like, can you believe this? And he's like, well, you've been talking about this for the past five years. So yeah, I can. Like, it's not surprising, (laughs) but still it's like every time I read something, I'm like, oh my gosh, I just can't believe that these are the outcomes of all of this. In the book, you talk about boundaries, dating, sex ed, consent, helping young girls identify toxic teachings and tricky people. Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk to me a little bit more about these toxic teachings and tricky people, because I I found that really interesting. So you're saying like, if virginity is a bad measure, and we're Mm -hmm. trying to help people not just make it to marriage as virgins, but make it to marriage with healthy partners, how did you go about uh, talking about tricky people or identifying what those aspects might be? One of the things we found is that in a lot of the literature aimed at teen girls, girls are consistently told to discount their own feelings. This is really common. Think about the acronym JOY. This is often taught in Christian circles, like Jesus first, other second, you last. And so that is the way that we're supposed to live our lives. There's Sunday school songs about it. Uh, There's a really big camp um, in the US, a series of camps called Camp Canacook. Mm -hmm. And they had a saying called I'm third. And it was based on this idea, Jesus first, other second, I'm last. And they had small groups about this. They had t-shirts about it. They had Bible studies throughout the year about it. Now, Camp Canacook is also currently being rocked by a major sexual abuse scandal. And I think those two things are related because when you teach kids, you matter last. It's very hard to stand up for yourself or to realize that I have value and that other people shouldn't be treating me this way. Because if you get upset at how you're being treated, that's a sign that you're selfish. And that right. you're not you're not really um, giving. Uh, here, here's just another example there that was in the book. A woman wrote about how when she was a teen, her dad, who was also the pastor of the church, was going to host this graduation party for her and her friends in the youth group. And 
this girl really did not want a certain boy invited because he had sexually assaulted several of her friends and was currently dating another friend. And they were all very concerned for this other friend. And they wanted to get this boy away from this other friend. And they just didn't feel comfortable having him there. But the pastor said, well, he needs to know Jesus and you're being selfish. And so, you know, this this boy's need to know Jesus was greater than the girl's perceived safety. Correct. Yeah. And this, my daughter experienced something very similar in youth group. There was a super creepy 18-year-old at youth group. They, the girls didn't want him there. They felt unsafe around him. They knew that he had assaulted some girls. They told the youth leader and they were told they were being judgmental, you know, because he needs Jesus. And, you know, this idea that someone else's salvation or not even their salvation, the, the chance for someone else to hear about Jesus in our church mm-hmm. matters more than your safety is something that girls have often heard. And even as I'm saying this, I know there's listeners going, but doesn't it, you know, but, mm-hmm. but his salvation is eternal and my suffering might just be temporary, but, but that wasn't, that wasn't Jesus's take. Like Jesus actually did stand up for those who were being hurt. Mm-hmm. Jesus took a very strong stance against those who would hurt others. And yeah. Jesus didn't die so that your predator could be on the praise team. That's really good. When you're talking about that joy acronym and, um, you know, it, it seems like it's a gospel message, Jesus first, other second, you last, but the effect of that for young women developmentally, and then you pair in all of those other purity culture teachings, you're right. It does set up to make women feel very small. Like they can't trust their feelings. They can't trust their emotions. They can't trust their gut instincts. They have to sacrifice themselves on the altar of, of like you're saying, men's salvation or anyone else's salvation over there, even personhood, you know? Mm-hmm. I, and it's not, it's not even a gospel message either. Like, like what did Jesus say? Love, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yes, Jesus gave up everything for us, but it was for a reason. It was so that we could have a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. He didn't give up everything and sacrifice everything so that other people didn't have to do the work. And and so I I think that we we often say, well, because Jesus gave up everything, we have to give, give up everything, but we don't realize there was a reason that Jesus gave up everything. And we need to put that reason in context. Yeah. And I really appreciate, you know, throughout the book, as you, you're looking at these old messages, you're saying, here are the effects. You're saying, here's what we can do better. And also here's what scripture says. Here's what Jesus actually says. So (laughs) I'm I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more in the context of um, when you were talking about the modesty messages and (laughs) compared to what Jesus says, because I was just this week in my practice working with clients and I have a practice in central Kentucky and I'm working with clients who are still believing these things, perhaps not even realizing them, you know, but I'm still hearing this 72 hour rule. Mm -hmm. I'm still hearing I'm responsible for my husband's desire or not seeking things elsewhere. So talk to me a little bit about the messages compared to what Jesus said about lust and taking responsibility and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think when you look at both the messages around modesty and consent, because they're very similar, the message that is given is boys, boys have such a high sex drive that they can't help but sin. So if they see any skin, they're going, they're going to lust. They're going to be very tempted to visually linger on, take in and imagine you naked, as Shanti Felden says, something like that. If you start to make out with a boy, he's not going to be able to stop. 
and and they actually say that in a book um for young women only says tells girls that 82 percent of boys have little ability and feel little responsibility to stop in a makeout situation which is so insulting to men too but continue oh it totally is well it's also complete rape culture it's complete rape culture because then she says if you want to stop it it's safest to not even start so in other words if you consent to kissing and mm -hmm. he then rapes you it's because you consented to the kissing so once you consenting to start is worse than him not honoring your consent and refusing to stop. And so this idea that that guys and not just not just the guys are like this, but that God specifically made guys like this. So this is God's purpose for men is to be completely overwhelmed by your body and to not be able to help themselves. And so that's why as girls, we need to recognize that and we need to do our best not to be a stumbling block, not to get into these situations because we can't expect boys to do the right thing. Mm. And that message is so damaging. It's also completely not, not true. What did Jesus do? Jesus put the responsibility directly on the man. He said, if you ever, whoever lusts after a woman, looks at a woman's lust, has already committed adultery. And he says that you should gouge your own eye out. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. So he doesn't say, if your eye causes you to sin, put a sweater over the underage girl. He directly puts the, the responsibility on the man. But that isn't what we have done. We have largely put the responsibility on the girls because you hear this all the time. You'll hear people say, well, obviously guys shouldn't lust. Obviously lust is a man's issue. But, and there's always a but, right? Girls need to realize how much power we have to and how and to incite lust. And so we need to be to just be kind to our brothers and not be stumbling blocks. And the problem is girls who believe that have major, major long-term negative consequences. So we need to stop saying that because by saying that, we are telling girls, your world is not safe and never will be. That's essentially the message that we're giving them. Yeah. Men are incapable of looking at you with respect and treating you as anything other than a sexual object, and you will always be at risk in the wider world. Well, yes, it's true that women are always at risk in a certain way. We shouldn't feel at risk when we are with the men in our church. Right. So what these messages really did was they stole any chance of a safe space for women. And they made women feel like my body is the problem because it's causing me to be in danger. Yeah. And so then how would you go about instructing moms to talk to their daughters about their bodies? Like what's a better message mm -hmm. when it comes to how you view yourself, how you view your body? What would you say? Yeah. So we, at the end of each chapter, we take moms through um, guided discussions with their daughters with role plays and scenarios and lots of fun things. There's the, the, the discussions are quite fun. Um, and we do have quite a few on modesty on how to talk about clothing choices in ways that don't cause shame. And basically, you just don't talk about causing guys to sin. Right. You can have these conversations without ever talking about causing guys to sin. Mm -hmm. We can talk about appropriateness, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? If you're going to be babysitting, don't wear a sundress. Like if you're going to be babysitting toddlers, wear something that you can get it down on the ground and roll around in. If you're going to go to a funeral, wear something that is somber and that is dressed up. Right. If you're going, if you're going to go to a job interview, look professional. Like, but if you're going to go to the beach, it's okay to wear a swimsuit. But if you're going to go water skiing, make sure it's a swimsuit with a lot of support, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Like the, it's 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 easy to talk about just appropriateness. We can talk about not flaunting wealth because that really is actually what modesty meant in the Bible. Right. Was not ostracizing people through what you wear. And so we can talk about how to do that well. And there's, there's lots of other ways that we can have those discussions, but yeah. it just doesn't need to be about your body being dangerous. That feels much more person-centered, much more based on like character and choices and giving girls agency you know, mm -hmm. um, to choose how they want to live into their faith that doesn't then put the burden of whatever men have going on on them. You know, right. it's like, and it, 
Yeah. And those conversations can be had with boys too, in exactly the same way. It's not a gendered conversation. Preach that, Sheila. (laughs) (laughs) So I am curious, I've told you, you know, a little bit about the culture that I grew up in, the culture that that I'm still in. There are good churches here and there are churches with tricky teachings. So Mm -hmm. how would you go about knowing if you're attending a church that is still subtly teaching some of these messages or has a little of this toxicity built into it? Yeah, that, and that is tricky. Um, one thing that I really want parents to understand is that the most toxic part of a church is always the youth group. Hmm. And often what happens in the youth group happens away from adult eyes. And so you don't always see it. But in youth group, that's where you have all the conversations about sex, because that's probably at least 50% of what they talk about, whether it's you know sex or porn or relationships or dating, or because that's what kids are thinking about. So it, 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 it makes sense. But often those conversations are led by people who have relatively little education. Often, you know, a Bible college graduate doesn't have education on trauma, doesn't have education on um, psychology or some of the really important things if you're going to lead teens in these ways. Uh, So I do think it's really important for parents to know what is being taught in youth group. So volunteer at your youth group, get to know your kids' friends, you know, know what they're talking about. Some of the most toxic stuff that my girls heard was actually from their friends, especially their male friends in, in high school. It was I mean, their youth pastor was bad enough, but (laughs) it was often from the guys that went to the youth group. So know your kids' friends, know what's being said in youth group. If there is like a weekend retreat, go be one of the parent volunteers and just see what's being said. Um, Because it it doesn't always reflect what is said from the pulpit. It's often an entirely different world. And I think as parents, we do need to understand that. Also, the place where you are most likely to experience sexual harassment or abuse in a church is within the youth group, um, often from other youth leaders. About 20% of our girls did say that they experienced that in a church situation. Um, and of those who experienced it, 30% were either the youth pastor or the head pastor. You know, this is a serious thing and we need to, we just need to keep our eyes open and know what's going on. But beyond that, I would ask bigger questions like in your church, are women's voices elevated or are they relegated to the sidelines? Because that has a huge impact on how girls see themselves. And if, if women in the church are told you are here to support the man, that is is going to be a toxic message long-term in terms of your daughter's future marital satisfaction, in terms of the kind of man she's going to choose to marry, um, in terms of her own self-esteem. So you need to ask like, okay, this church may have a great youth group. This church may have great worship on Sunday mornings. I might really like the messages, but is this a church where women's voices matter? Or is this a church where women are like the the sidekicks to the main characters, which are always the men? And that isn't a healthy environment for girls. I mean, it's the reason why so many millennials and Gen Zers have left the church in droves, right? Yeah. Because there's not a space for them there. And I think parents need to understand, because this is, this is like earth shattering. This is like earthquake worthy. For the very first time since they have ever measured this, there's a generation where females who have no religious affiliation outnumber males. And that's Gen Z. Like this has never happened before because women have always been more religious than men across all cultures, across all places. Like we've always been more religious. But in the United States among Gen Zs, males are more religious than females because women are leaving the church in droves because it doesn't include them. Think about it. The church is the only place in society today where your daughter will ever be told her voice doesn't matter as much because she's a girl. She may experience it in the workplace or in school, but 
it is not the policy from the higher ups. Right. And if she were ever to speak about it or demand recourse, there would be some recourse. But it is actually the policy from many churches. And church is the only place where she will ever be taught this today. I'll add a little of my own experience, if that's okay. I didn't grow up in that toxic of an environment, honestly. And I'm so thankful for that. I had parents who corrected a lot of stuff that I've read in these books or in Brio or what have you. But I did... As I got to college and went to a Christian college, there's a lot of, there's a seminary nearby. A lot of what was baked into, into churches that did promote some of these teachings then filtered into the larger Christian community around here. And so I've been involved in like Christian counselor settings, even where there's a wide range of licenses. Mm -hmm. Um, And you just, you see these teachings still, or these attitudes, I'll say, where as a woman, you try to speak up or you try to bring yourself to the table. And then there's still just that attitude from different people mm-hmm. who are coming from those churches. So yeah, it, I mean, it's a big deal. Like it it trickles out and it has a ripple effect um, within the larger community too. So yeah. And I want to say this, this is actually one of the most interesting findings that I think we had. And uh, we're working on a peer reviewed paper on it right now. But what we really, really want parents to understand is that religiosity, believing in Jesus, going to church is a good thing overwhelmingly girls, if girls who go to church have higher self-esteem, they get better marriages long-term. Like it is a good thing to go to church. We're not saying you shouldn't go to church, but all of the benefits of church attendance evaporate as soon as a girl starts believing the toxic stuff. She would actually be better off if she hadn't gone to church at all. That's really sobering. Yes, it is. But if church attendance overall is good, then it means there have to be a lot of churches doing this right. And so we need to start feeding into the churches that are doing it right and emptying out the churches that are doing it wrong. Like if the Mm. churches aren't going to listen to you, if they're just going to promote that toxic stuff anyway, then get your friends who also think it's toxic and go (laughs) to some small church down the road that maybe doesn't have as flashy programs, but is healthy. And you can start breathing life into that church. And I think that's the big movement that needs to start happening. I think about my nieces and nephews and the kind of world I want them to grow up in and within Christianity, you know, mm-hmm. and what I want them to be exposed to and empowered by and and all of that. So so you're saying step one, get involved in your child's youth group. Step two, if you are seeing some of these things, try to address them to see if the leadership is teachable. Mm-hmm. Um, and if those things are still occurring then look at finding a healthier church for your family. Yeah. 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 And I know that's a hard ask. I know it is. We we had to do that several times as the kids were growing up because things just got too toxic. So I I understand it's a hard ask, Mm -hmm. but our kids matter and they deserve better than this. Mm -hmm. They deserve better than to be told you're a stumbling block to boys and that he can't help it. (laughs) And, you know, and that you talk too much. And so you need to be silent and you're more easily deceived because you're female. They deserve better than that. Yeah. I appreciate in your book how you talk about, you talk about, you acknowledge that people are in different places on their journey. They might be coming at this already seeing some things. They might be coming at it. And this conversation we're having right now is totally new for them. So you leave room for people to pick up your book and to just be open-minded and be challenged by it. What would you say to the mom who picks this up and feels uncomfortable reading some of it, whether because she experienced this and didn't realize it or because she sees it, but now these conversations feel very scary potentially to have with her child. 
Yeah. And I get it. This is, it, it's, it's hard to realize how much we have been hurt mm. because I think a lot of us haven't processed that. And I always thought of myself as someone who's fairly healthy. And the more I do this research, the more I realize, oh my gosh, that's why Same. <laughs> I, now have, I now have another piece of why I've always reacted in a certain way to something. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's a hard thing to realize. And I think as a mom, the more that, that we can just look back on our own teenage lives and realize, okay, these are some of the messages that were told to me that weren't helpful, even though I didn't realize it at the time. And this, you know, I felt a lot of shame about my body, or I felt a lot of shame about my period, or I felt a lot of shame about how I had dreams of doing something big and important. And I felt like I shouldn't be thinking that way as a woman. The more that we can work those things out and even talk to our own kids about that, both our boys and our girls, mm-hmm. you know, the healthier the family situation is going to be. One of the big things that we found in our research is that more conversations are always good. The more that parents can talk to their kids, the more information their kids have at a younger age, the better things are long-term. So mm-hmm. information and conversations is always a good thing and openness. So you don't have to have it all figured out. Like you don't, you can say to your kids, you know, I'm reading this and I still like, I'm looking at the modern fashions about crop tops and that's still causing me major anxiety. And I know all your friends are wearing crop tops and I know you want to wear a crop top and I'm just feeling major anxiety. And can we talk about why I'm feeling anxiety and what you think is appropriate and how can we figure out what appropriate is? And like, just have that conversation with your kids is instead of you telling your kids what they have to do, tell them why you're uncomfortable. What messages did you hear? Was mm-hmm. there truth in some of the messages? What do your kids think, you know? And just yeah. have those conversations and work it through together. Which is a much more intimate relationship that you're describing, right? To be mm-hmm. vulnerable with your tweens and teens as they're coming of age and having their own opinions about things. Yeah, it's much more intimate rather than fear-based. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's totally okay to say to your kid, you know what? I don't actually think there's anything morally wrong with you wearing that, but I just can't handle it. Like, this is a me problem. This is not a you problem. This is a me problem. And I understand it's a me problem. So how about this? Let's go shopping. I will buy you something that is totally fashionable, but that doesn't cause my blood pressure to rise. (laughs) Because I realize this is a me problem. And like kids relate to that. They, they're they okay with you having issues, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But mm-hmm. the more that we can, we can put it in the right perspective, as opposed to shaming our kids, the better that conversation is going to go. That's really good. I mean, I so appreciate your emphasis on self-esteem and emotional health. And, you know, as a licensed marriage and family therapist, of course... <laughs> I'm oftentimes going back to family of origin. And so I appreciate your saying, like, take a look at your upbringing, take a look at what you got, and then share that because that has the potential to impact generations mm-hmm. um, and create not only healing for yourself as a millennial or Gen Zer, but then create healing generationally as well. Mm-hmm. So you, gosh, how many women have you now surveyed? Women is 29,000, I think. And okay. then we did 3,000 men too. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So um, you've talked to a lot of people. <laughs> you've surveyed a lot of people, interviewed a lot of people. What is one thing you want parents to know is just critical when it comes to raising a holistically healthy daughter? I think the big thing would just be that their feelings and thoughts matter. One of the big problems that we do as parents is we see our kids disagreement with us or disagreement with the church as a threat. And so we try to clamp it down. Mm -hmm. Or if our kids get really moody, we see that as a sin um, or them being rebellious. And 
kids need our permission to think for themselves. Even if you don't like the way they're thinking, sometimes they just need to work things out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they might even end up where you want them to be, but, but they need permission to be discerning because if they don't have that, it is so much easier to get caught up in toxic workplaces, in toxic friendships, in toxic marriages, in toxic churches, because they're taught whatever you think is probably wrong. And so you shouldn't voice it. So the more we give our daughters a voice in our families and in our churches, the more that voice is going to keep them safe long-term. That's so good. Yeah, this is all really great, Sheila. I have read four of your books now since The Great Sex Rescue, and I keep recommending them to clients <laughs> and just appreciate your your perseverance and the way that you just like <laughs> almost systematically are addressing some of these things. And it's like, okay, we've talked to the women. Now let's talk to the parents. Now let's help the next generation. You know? <laughs> um, so I love it and really appreciate it. So where can listeners go to connect with you further? And then to buy your latest book, She Deserves better. Yes. So you can find me at baremarriage.com. All my social media links are there. You can see me yelling on Twitter or posting fixed it for you on Instagram or, or whatever. So those are there. Um, our podcast drops every Thursday, the Bear Marriage podcast. And then our books, if you click on books on, on the website, you will find The Great Sex Rescue and She Deserves Better and all kinds of other things, or just look on Amazon for She Deserves Better. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you again, you guys. Her book comes out on April 18th and I have already told friends and family to get it. Some of them are already planning to. So yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. Best to you, Sheila. Love is not about Love is not a bond Love is just as fragile as it is.